and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. Nathan Godwin is a South Australian landscape photographer with a passion for the ocean and coastal images. He loves a good adventure exploring the South Australian coastline or longer road trips interstate to capture the beauty that Australia has to offer. Over the last few years, Nathan started hosting regular Insta-meets around South Australia. These meets are open to all levels and he's always happy to help people capture the images they have in mind or have a chat as the light changes. We discuss his origins in macro photography, how that has shaped his unique vision for landscape photography and his favourite South Australian shooting locations, along with a lot more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Nathan. Welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Doing really good. Thanks, Grant. How are you going today? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a fairly chill day today. Uh, uh, dog sitting for my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound like a pretty chill day. Give him a feed and run him around a little bit and he sleeps for the rest of the day, which is pretty good, which means I can get on with things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> so... Enough about me and uh, dog sitting. How did you get started in photography and in particular, why landscape photography? My story is a little bit different in the sense that it didn't actually start with landscape photography. So everyone asked me how long it's been that I've been shooting and I never know the exact answer. But I think it's been about probably 12 or 13 years since I got my first camera sure. and I was actually drawn to macro photography. Wow. And photos of jumping spiders particularly. So there's a photographer in America called Thomas Shahan who takes yep. like absolutely incredible macro photos. And I think on Facebook one day I was just like scrolling through Facebook and I saw this photo and I was like, wow, this this is incredible. I was like, what what on earth is this? And I was like, like started like scrolling through his stuff and I was like, this is amazing. And then I like followed him on Instagram and I was like, wow, mm-hmm. this is just I want to do this. I was like, this is like, it's so intriguing that the detail that he captured for like these little like spot spiders and dragon uh, dragonflies and all different sorts of little arthropods. And I was like, yeah. I've got to do this. So probably about a week after I first saw that, I went out and bought my first camera, bought a macro lens for it. And then the journey started probably weeks of just taking really average macro photos. And as time got on, started sort of trialing different things and then just fell in love with landscape photography. Like it just, just switched. I mean, I still do a little bit of macro photography at the moment, but predominantly I just love getting out, watching a sunset or a sunrise or just capturing the night sky and just soaking up that that moment in time that for me, I feel a lot of people probably don't pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And so then I well, found- there's not a lot of people out. At no. Hours, you know, I, I know when I go to the beach- I might see, or if I'm if I'm lucky, half a dozen swimmers in a in a rock pool here here in Sydney. Yeah, and that's and that's in a metropolis of what five and a bit million people. Exactly, and Adelaide's obviously a lot smaller. But it's for me, I, I find it really intriguing because I'll go out and I'll see this amazing sunset and these all these colours, and I, I'll look around. And the few people that are out, like sure, a few of them are pulling out their phones and taking photos, but a lot of them just keep walking. Yeah. Or you see people like just driving. And then I think to myself, like people are at home watching TV when you could be out mm-hmm. enjoying this weather or enjoying the light. And so for me, landscape photography is all about capturing that beauty and then sharing it with the people that don't 
stop to appreciate it in the hopes that then they'll go out and appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is really, really difficult at times because I think some of the tools that we have or some of the, the ways of sharing images people don't really see or appreciate at times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In terms of the learning macro, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, because there's quite a bit of technical uh, skill that you need to put together, you know, to, to build up a really good macro image. How did you go about learning that? Is that just YouTube and trial and error or were you yeah. doing something a little bit more formal? No, you, you, every, everything. So all my photography is YouTube reading and then trial and error. So mm -hmm. nothing is, I've no done no formal training. I've just spent countless hours just out and about taking photos. That's I learned best by doing. Yeah. So I'll watch a few videos to understand a few things, like maybe how to build like a softbox to be able to attach to my flash yep. instead of going out and buying one. But the majority of it is literally just, all right, let's go out, let's take a photo, let's see what it looks like. All right, how can I perfect that? And then I'll right. come back and I'll, I'll go out again. And then building like a macro rig is, is also part of the fun because you can get a macro lens, which is one-to-one. -one. Yep. I've played around with reversing lenses to get different magnification okay. and then also like extension tubes as well yeah, to then yeah. get greater magnification to be able to play around and then just literally just trial and error and crawling around on the ground looking for little spiders and, and bugs and stuff and then them scurrying away and just being frustrated that I found one and then it's, it's disappeared. <laughs> Your subject wouldn't stand still. <laughs> no. No, luck luckily like jumping spiders are actually really curious creatures. Yeah, and right. a lot of people are scared of spiders, but they're actually, they, when they see some, not all, but they'll sort of be more curious about, okay, what are you doing? Mm. And why are you interested in me? And so they will sort of pose for photos. Yeah. And just, I don't know, they've just got these really unique personalities and like quirks and facial expressions. And I probably sound like crazy to be talking no, about no, spiders no, like this. No, I'm no, like, no. I'm, I'm smiling thinking about them because I've, <laughs> I think back to photos that I've taken. And I'm like, I just remember that spider just being like, I'm, I see you I see you taking photos of me. I'm, I'm putting on a little bit of a show for you. <laughs> they might um, be looking at themselves uh, as a reflection in the lens, maybe. Pro probably that too. And like the beauty about jumping spiders, and, and predominantly the ones that I love are the peacock jumping spiders. Yeah, yeah. And which are the ones that are known for like putting up their backs and then dancing side to side for the female mate. Yeah. And... They're, they're, they're probably the spider that I, I've searched for the longest and it took me three and a half years to finally find one in Adelaide. Wow. They're just so, like, there's a lot of, there's spiders everywhere. There's spiders yeah. in the house now, they're, they're, like, they're everywhere, but these like peacock jumping spiders in Adelaide are super rare mm. and they're only in small little pockets of the state. And I remember the, the first day I saw, I finally found one. I was like shaking. I was like literally like, oh my God, oh my God. My friend's like, what's, what's going on? I'm like, you don't understand what this is. And he was like, it's just a spider, man. He's like, just let it go. I'm like, no, I'm like, I want to take photos of this thing. Um, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, a bit of a, a, a spider gig. Before before I came on, I was actually wearing one of my pajama tops, which is, uh, it's it's actually got a jumping spider on the front of it. And it's a, it's a shirt that uh, Thomas Shahan had actually designed. Nice. And so I've got it, but it's falling apart slowly because I've had it for, yeah, probably 10 or 12 years now. Wow. Um, but I was like, oh, I can't wear that on this. <laughs> it's 
fair enough. I don't really use the video very much. Uh, oh. I'm I'm thinking about whether or not I start releasing some of these uh, as videos on uh, on YouTube uh, or not. At the moment, yeah. I just do the audio on YouTube, but uh, you never know. We we might. Uh, we, we we might see your uh, your yeah, smile maybe. face. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so I, I guess taking those lessons from macro, how did you translate some of that learning into what you're doing with your landscape work? Probably just the trial and error, mm. because you you go out and and, and macro is probably it, it's really complex in terms of the lighting, the angles, the lenses, even the, the focusing is, is super like, cause you're working with such shallow depths of fields and these spiders can be a few millimeters. So taking probably some of those, those learning skills from the macro of just the struggles with, you know, I guess it's different in the sense that the environment you're dealing with a much larger, larger field, but mm -hmm just the trial and error of, okay, well, where do I focus? Where do I want my, my, my subject to be in, in the image or the focal point of the image to be and just playing around. So moving around, trying different compositions and then just, just really, I think just trial and error, like really is just shooting, seeing if it looked good, if it, if it felt right as well is a big thing for me. Cool. So what is it that you think you're chasing most in your photography? What is it that you're thirsty for? That's, that's an interesting question. For me, I always like to think that I'm chasing the light. Mm. The, the light is, is what I love the most. So when, when you're watching a sunset and the light is continuously changing as the sun's setting or the sun's rising and you see just different parts of a scene, whether it's, you know, like the jetty as, as the sun is setting and you see the light just changing across and, and lighting up the textures of the wood. Yeah. That, that's what I'm always chasing. Like just those, those intricate little moments where the light is just perfect. Yeah. And everything just flows together. And, you know, if it's a sunset that's got no clouds, there's, there's going to be a bit of a glow. And so then that glow will, will transfer onto, again, I guess, to use, if it's a jetty, you're going to see that along the side of the jetty or if depending on where it is, it's just going to light up certain parts of the scene. And I'd say, I'd say that's what I'm chasing is, is, is that light and those, those fleeting, because it's, it's only momentarily, like momentarily there. And then it, it stops and it's gone until the next day, potentially. And some of my favourite images, if I think back to, they are literally very brief moments where the light, if it peeked through a cloud and it was just perfect for a second and I was there just to be able to take a picture, um, would probably be what I'm chasing the most. Yeah, fantastic. Do you have goals in your photography? And if so, what are they? I, in, in terms of goals, I have... I have a few and, and they're predominantly just mainly about just capturing certain locations. Mm -hmm. So I have a, 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 I have different areas like New Zealand is, is top of my list and I'm heading there in just over a month's time. Nice. And so my goal, my goals are basically just to capture images in places that I've seen online. 
mm-hmm. and and capture my own like my own images that have a feeling of of me in them. Yep. So that that would probably be one of my main goals is just getting out and traveling more. I'm also very driven by the the by personal growth and and just improving in what I'm doing. So I I've for years have always looked at my images and been like this is a good image but what could be done better? And so I'm continuously working on how do I take the image better in the first place? How do I post-process the image better to just give more emotion in it? Mm -hmm. Um, And then if I think about like probably a bit more of maybe a a big massive dream or goal of mine, I I would love to see my images one day potentially in like a National Geographic magazine, which is is a pretty out there goal because I think with – the with National Geographic and the type of photos that they do share, they're probably not in line with what I currently capture and share. Yeah, yeah. But that would be like that's just a, like I remember as a kid growing up and and mum every month buying the National Geographic magazine and just being fascinated by the images that are in there, whether it's the wildlife or the landscapes, and just being like, "This is amazing! It's like, this is incredible!" And so now that I've I've got the tools to be able to capture images. I'm like, that would be an amazing goal to have for me. Yeah, cool. In terms of setting some of those goals, do you establish projects to achieve them or are you more spontaneous about, okay, well, this will help me and I'll just add that to the the the, show, the, the shopping cart, I guess, along the way, you know? Yeah. So I think... In terms of in terms of like setting things in motion to try and reach those goals, I'm probably very spontaneous in the sense that I would just go and do. I don't necessarily always plan my shoots, whereas I know some photographers will actually go, okay, I'm going to be at this spot at this time to, to get a certain photo. If, yeah. if I think about like trying to get photos in National Geographic and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the travelling and the capturing images of the places that I want to go to, I have like soft plans in place to travel to different places. Obviously, New Zealand's that's booked and that's ready to go. Um, and then in terms of the the growth, in terms of the images that I want to capture, it's it's very spontaneous. It's just it's it, it it's actually something that I just do constantly. Like I'm always thinking about. Yeah, right. In that sense, but it's spontaneous in terms of like when I do actually go and do something. I'm shooting most nights, and I'm I'm doing something photography related nearly every day. Mm-hmm. But I don't have like set like thirty day, sixty day, ninety day goals. Yeah, right. Or like small things to try and hit those those markers. Yep. Okay. But I probably should. It's probably something that would be handy to have to be able to track that progress. Yeah, so I, I guess some people get into the planning side of it a lot more, and that becomes integral to, I guess, not necessarily building their career, but sort of building the elements in their portfolio or building out uh, skill sets that they might want to move into or even trying different genres. You know, they, they say, all right, well, how do I how do I apply this to what I've learned here to another, another genre of uh, photography? Yeah, which is like something that if I think, for myself, I, I, I realise this. You, you'll chop this out potentially anyway, but I've realised I just keep saying I think. Um, now I just got myself like tossed. Anyway, uh, back on track. So, 
you know, the skills that I've learned from landscape, I find that I push myself by trying different genres as well. Mm -hmm. So I've recently shot some maternity photos, which are completely different. Yeah. But it's giving me those extra skills to learn like different styles of shooting Mm. to build on that skill set, which, you know, as I get better with different things, I can start incorporating maybe if it's models or people into my landscape photos to give them that extra layer. Yeah, and I, I think those compositional lessons, you know, I don't want to call them rules because, yep. you know, yeah, okay, you got rule of thirds and various other rules in inverted yep. commas, <laughs> but I, I think of them more as lessons because you learn as you as you form up your compositions, you learn what to include, what to exclude, whether or not a tighter crop or a wider shot is going to be right for that particular scene. And I guess applying that into portrait photography, uh, you've got a, or you've already got that sense of what the landscape or what a, a scene might look like as a backdrop, and then applying that into portrait photography helps you place your people in in the scene in a in an attractive way or in a, in a way that's actually going to make people want to look at it yeah i really like we said there about like it being a lesson and not necessarily a rule because i find that a lot of people that are that are coming up in the photography scene whether they've just picked up a camera or they've been around for a few months they're really fixated on that's a rule mm. i've got to do this this is what it's got to be do. rule of thirds or it's got to be yeah whatever you know and and it, and it doesn't need to be. Yeah. It, it can be whatever it is that you want it to be. They're, they're there to help guide you, and that the basics will assist. But you can you can create whatever it is that you want mm. that aligns with what you want to capture, and not necessarily following these these set rules in terms of like I guess the rule of thirds is probably the biggest one that a lot of people do focus on a lot. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's about making that creative choice around what's right for the scene. And yeah. I mean, one to be honest, one of my favourite shots that I've taken personally is one where the, just throw the rule of thirds completely out. That said, there are some elements of using thirds in there, but if it's it's not traditional, the horizon is really up near the top of the the, the frame. Uh, and the rest of the scene sort of fills out. But if you look at how things are positioned right to left and so forth, you know, the negative space versus the bits that's filled with subject matter. And, you know, yes, I've kind of used rule of thirds, but not maybe not in in, in a non-traditional way. Yeah, but it's because of... It's learning that skill to be able to say, okay, well, I don't have to put the horizon on the the upper or the lower third line. It it could be right up near the top or right near the bottom of the frame, depending on what it is that I'm shooting and how I'm actually bringing the whole thing together. Exactly, and and somebody that might be fixated on the rule would be like, no, it's got to be like this, it's got to be like this, and they'll come away with a completely different image. Correct. That that could be still a really great image. Absolutely, yeah. But it may not have the same feel that your images has. And they might look at that and go, well, that's not how I've been taught or, how, or what the rule says to do, but they'll go, that photo has this certain feeling to it that is that changes, maybe evokes an emotion in them. Mm. And they'll be like, oh, I should have tried that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, that's where it's a lesson. You learn as you go. Definitely, definitely. <laughs>
See, because I know for me, probably the rule that I follow, not follow, lesson, the lesson I follow the most is like leading lines. Mm. So whether it's, you know, the jetty, if it's a path, I hate to say it, but a set of stairs, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, those those leading lines for me are something that I'm all, I think I'm subconsciously drawn to yeah. because I, when I look back, even just thinking about some of my images now, my, my, my predominantly landscape-based images, there is some form of leading line through an image, whether it's the curve of the beach or it's the stairs or it's a jetty or something. There's always that probably focus where I'm probably less focused on like the like rule of thirds, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, what you're saying about the leading lines, it, it's something which is very, very common in, in landscape photography. You know, some 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 might call it cliched, but, you know, I, I don't think cliched images are necessarily bad either. Yeah. <laughs> Because again, as you said, it's really about the emotion that is, is expressed in it and how you react to that. And it might be, oh, I don't want to see any more of those stairs or I don't want to see any more of that jetty or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. I've, I've seen it so many times. I mean, there's that, um, uh, that bridge in Sweden, between Sweden and Denmark there that, you know, it, I, I can't Imagine all the all the Opera House, all the Sydney Harbour yeah. Bridge has just been shot to death. Yeah, but there's still certain images that you look at and you go, "Yeah, that's a really good one," and I it really anchors a, an emotion to it. And you know, you look at it and go, even though compositionally it's probably not very much different to a lot of others, but there's elements in it that make it slightly different enough that you stop, look at it and go, oh, I'm really, I'm really hooked to that image, you know, or to yeah. that composition. Yeah. And you're right. Like there's, I, I saw an image recently of the Sydney Opera House and you see so many of them, especially with like when Vivid's on, mm-hmm. you, you know, after, after the Queen's passing, there was like, there was Opera House. I was just scrolling through Facebook and Instagram and I was just like Opera House, Opera House, Opera House, Opera House. But then there was one the other day that just like literally stopped me dead. I was just like, wow. And it was not like it was not, compositionally, it was not unique in any way, but there was just something about the image. I was just like, this is just incredible. Right. And, you know, for, for South Australian based photographers, you know, Port Wollonga, uh, the, the Port No Longer South Stairs uh, yep. are probably two of those images, like they're probably South Australia's version of those, yeah. those places in the sense that they're always seen. And people always say to me, they're like, why do you keep going back to the stairs? Why do you keep going back to Port Wollonga? And I'm like, even though compositionally the photos are, are, are relatively similar at times, there's a different feeling and emotion. And yeah, the conditions the, are different, and the various yeah. other things that you may do to the image. You know, you might it might even just be a change in uh, white balance or the, the the temperature. The you know uh, of that that white balance, you might just adjust up or down slightly, and it changes the feel entirely. 100%. And like one of my images that went viral years and years ago that I absolutely, I absolutely hate it. Like I just hate it. And <laughs> I've edited that photo since and it, it, it has this totally different feel to it. And it's, I think that's also the other thing that's beautiful about digital photography is that we can go back. And yeah, you're not restricted to what you got in the negative, then delivering pretty much the same result. 
though that said, even in uh, in, in film in darkroom, if you've got a negative, you can still adjust again, depending on if it's color or black and white. But even, even there, you can adjust the white balance, you can adjust tone, you can adjust contrast, you can you can actually make that negative into something completely different to a, 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 another processing technique that you put to it. And yeah, yeah but as, as you say, it's far easier in, in digital to, uh, to to get that how you want it. Oh, 100%, which, yeah, and obviously it's just so, it's, it's it's so simple because we can just literally just sit there and go, yep, this photo can be processed hundreds and hundreds of different times and add different elements into it. And, and as you said, just tweak the tiniest of little things and it will change the whole feeling of the image. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess that leads us on to your approach to photography as it relates to experience versus art. You, you've obviously, you know, attached that emotional response, I guess, and you're very aware of that. Does that mean that what you're trying to do is artistic with the image, or are you still trying to remain true to what you've seen in the, uh, you know, and make it more of a, a, I don't want to say documentary per se, because it's not just here's the shot, here's exactly what it looked like, but the feeling that was there when you were standing maybe at the top of the stairs or the, the bottom of the stairs or wherever, yeah. wherever you were. Yeah. So, for me, I've found over the years that that's changed. So early on, I was very much about these dreamy, long mm. exposure, ethereal feeling type images that were probably way over the top in terms of saturation and, and vibrancy. And yeah, they, they weren't, yeah, we, we definitely would go through that. And was, they weren't re- like, they, they were real in the sense, obviously, that the light was there and the colour to some degree was there, yep. but I've boosted it and tweaked a lot of it to change it far outside of what it actually was. Mm-hmm. And so I'd probably say back then I was probably a bit more of an artist in the sense of I was creating digital art. Yep. As this year has gone along, I feel I've sort of moved more to a lot more natural in terms of removing, even, even though I still capture quite a bit of pastel type images mm-hmm. they're still true to what they are yeah. and in some of my images i'll remove the saturation just so that they don't feel like i have just cracked the saturation or that they're not too vibrant they're not too punchy and i'll pull back in certain areas to make it how i felt at the time mm-hmm. whereas two three years ago it was it was the complete opposite it was like let's try and make this image just look like out of this world in a sense that it was just, it's not real, but people, and people would comment and be like, oh, wow, that's like, that's amazing. Like, I wish I was there. And it's like, well, I, I look back now and I go, well, it wasn't actually like that. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't quite the same. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, and there's certain elements to my images now where probably I'm borderline between pushing it back to how I used to be. Mm-hmm. But a lot of my images now, I, I feel are definitely, more true to how the scene is in terms of the light and the colors and i'm not playing so much in like the shadows and and the split toning and adding extra colors into this to the shadows which is what i used to do a lot so i add a lot of like pinks into the shadows yep uh, and and or sorry into the highlights and then blues into the shadows and just tweak it too much 
yeah, Whereas yeah. now I'm doing less of that, but then probably making the glow of the sun just that little bit more now. It's probably one of the things yeah. I do a lot. In terms of making a conscious decision around that, is that something that you've just changed over time or is it something that you sort of said, okay, well, I'm, I, I guess what drove that decision to change the style slightly? I, I think just as I've grown as an artist mm. or as a photographer, I've gone through sort of as you mentioned, like we all go through that phase where we do super saturated, super vibrant images, you know, yep. and I, I, like I could easily have stuck to that and just kept doing that, just keep punching that up. Then I've just, as I've like grown and, and I've been shooting more and more, I've just been more drawn to those a bit more natural images. And so it's just, it's slowly evolved as time's gone on and it will continue to evolve. And And I don't know where I'll be, in six months time, I may dive back the other way, or I may move more into maybe adding extra elements into images, like in terms of like maybe just Photoshopping things in, I don't think I will. Yep. Uh, I have toyed with it in the past in terms of moving things around in a scene or making the moon bigger than what it actually is. But then I don't feel like that's photography. And so yeah, I, yeah. I think of myself as a photographer well, first. Yeah, yeah, it's like that's that's definitely more art, and even though that it's some level of photography, it's it's not what I want to portray. I want to portray yeah. what the scene is, what the emotion is that I felt when I was there, and hopefully invoke that same emotion in somebody that's looking at that image. Yeah, cool. I mean, for me, there's no right or wrong here because you know a composite image. If you've gone out, as long as you not you know, cutting and pasting other people's work into your images, which as long as you got their permission, that's great if that's yeah. what you do. <laughs> um, but I, I guess in, in terms of that whole genre of digital art as opposed to straight photography, um, I guess it it's really a stylistic choice that people can make and... I certainly, you know, I'm, from my perspective, I, I do a bit of both and yep. quite happy doing a bit of both. Uh, quite like, you know, nailing a documentary style image that just shows this is this is what happened or this is what it looked like and, you know, just got the colour and contrast exactly right and so forth, but also quite happy to sit there and make a, a nice dreamy, shot as you say maybe enlarge the moon a little or whatever you know yep um the thing is as long as you're honest about it as long as you're telling people that's what you're doing i don't, I don't think there's a problem with it no and i think that that is probably the big thing is because there are photographers that are out there that will create these images and that's it yeah and so people go oh wow that's amazing i wish i could have gotten that but really there is that composite and you're right like i think you do need to tell people that, hey, this is actually a composite. Like, I've done this. You don't have to say necessarily like, this is exactly what I've done and how I've done it, but just be like, this is a composite. This I didn't add this element. Or I'm... And, and I think that's a very important thing because then it's just setting the right expectation, not expectation, but just showing people that, like, it's okay to do that as, as well. Because I feel yeah. at times some people are like, no, you can't do this composite stuff. You've got to 
Well, it's like the the compositional rules. There, there, yeah. there, there are none really. You can pretty much do what you like. <laughs> That's yeah. the nice thing about it. Exactly. I was I was talking to someone before this, and they're when they are, it's a bit cloudy for the moon tonight, and so they're hoping to still get a shot, and then they'll just composite it into another photo. But they've, they've said like, this is my plan, and then I'll share it and explain this is what it is because of the conditions. Well, right, and I think that's that's definitely the right way about going about it. And and there's no, I, I don't feel it's wrong to do composites. No. I, I think similar to yourself, I'm probably the same. Whereas sometimes I'll do it. Um, if I think back to an image, I think I shared it, but then I deleted it because I wasn't 100 happy with it. But it was the elements were all from the one night, mm-hmm. uh, and I shot like a skyline of like the Gold Coast skyline. Yep. But where the skyline was was no clouds. Yeah. And so I took hand to the right and the colours and the clouds looked amazing. And so I like, took a few photos and then in Photoshop, I just like, layered them together and you, you couldn't tell. Yeah. And, um, but like I didn't end up liking it in the end. So I removed it. Cause I, I think I've, I went through that phase where I was just like, oh, I don't know if I should be sharing composites. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I should just share what the scene was like on the night. So I removed it. But, probably should go back and revisit it and play around with it a bit and then reshare it. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's one of the reasons why I've taken to, I guess, describing not, yes, the settings are there and that's largely the settings. And I'll say, you know, this if I've done an exposure blend, which I do a lot of, you know, okay. because a lot of what I do is high contrast environments, sunrise, sunset, waterfalls, Sometimes, you know, you get that high contrast and it's really difficult to manage, you know, that high dynamic range of very dark shadows and very bright highlights without doing some kind of exposure blending. Yeah. It's not impossible. You get the right camera, you can do it, you know. (laughs) But I also enjoy the the processing side of things. So, you know, that that to me is, is a big part of what I do. And so I'm very open about, yes, this isn't one single image and you couldn't possibly get that necessarily. Well, you could if you had the right filters and you could, you know, make sure that you had a nice flat horizon, which I don't always have and so yeah. forth. But it's it's really around being honest around what I'm doing. You know? So if I put, put up a composite image, I'm saying this is a composite. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying this is all shot, one shot, and you know, hallelujah, I'm an amazing photographer. I'm, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, I, when I think about what you've just spoken about, I think about that image that you shared. Was it yesterday with the light through the trees? Yes, that was a, that was a single image. Yeah. Okay. Like that. Yeah. I've just when you were talking, I thought maybe that was a like a, a blending. That like yeah, that image. No, that, I think. Uh, that that one. I um. So I did. I I took. Uh, a range of shots in that one that I, uh, I shared there at uh, Girakul. And, I mean, the conditions were literally like that. There was these beautiful sunbeams come down between the trees, lighting up. And if you have a look at it, it was actually, the if you had a look at the raw file, it's probably overexposed by about a stop and a half. Um, and so I brought it down in... Adobe Camera Raw by about a, a stop and a half to try and manage the highlights. There's still a couple of blown highlights in small patches, but 
I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, but everything else, all I did then was I selectively played with uh, the uh, white balance on the light rays as opposed to the uh, streams of the waterfall. So oh, the, wow. there was more yellow tone in those light streams and more white tone, or blue tone, I guess, in the in, in the waterfall stream. And literally yeah. that that was the that was the uh, the uh, developing or the processing trick that I used was just selective editing. So you use a, a mask to mask out. That's that's what I want to. Uh, that's what I want to affect. And I just tweaked the uh, the white balance for each of those two elements separately. But everything else was pretty much as, oh, as wow. shot. And then it that's... was just around getting contrast and everything right. Yeah, well, that's incredible. Like just to think of like that. I've never thought about actually doing that, playing around with the different. Those different values separately. Yeah, was, in uh, <laughs> this comes from watching copious amounts of YouTube, and uh, yeah. uh, I, I keep telling a lot of people that uh, F sixty four Academy Blake Brutus, uh, his understanding of how Photoshop works is, I, I think, almost second to none, and his way of describing how to manage colour in particular and selectively manage colour. He's got some fantastic tutorials on on how to do some of those things. And it's really that that and um, the ability to, uh, I guess, now in Adobe Camera Raw, if I'd done that in, in Photoshop, I don't use Lightroom personally. Yeah. Um, I actually find the... Um, uh, what do you call it? The the database that it builds the, the the galleries and everything annoying. I find it easier to find stuff in the in the file system just using Windows Explorer. <laughs> Personally, yeah. Um, but any, anyway, um, I, I use the the ability to use masks in Adobe Camera Raw slash Lightroom is really the thing that triggered that thinking process and the 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 I guess the the thought behind getting around to actually editing an image that way uh, it's 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 not a technique I've used a lot recently yeah. uh, in terms of the white balance separation uh, I've done quite a lot of uh, a lot of my images I do selective contrast adjustments so. You'll select midtones, highlights, and shadows, and then selectively using a curves adjustment layer, uh, tweak each of the the contrast elements in those those three uh, differently. So you're, you're separating separating out how the contrast actually works across the image. So that, that's that's a technique I've used quite a bit. And the reason I do that is because it just gives you really fine tuned control over every part of your image and how how it how the contrast actually works within within that image. Which is something that you don't really get in Lightroom. We don't get in Lightroom. You don't get that fine level of control. Unless you're using luminosity masks, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost in, uh, you, you can do it with with masking now to a point. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the most recent update in, in Lightroom 
There was uh, the ability to use a curves adjustment with with a mask. Oh, okay. So if you take a look at it, I don't know if you've got the, the, the latest Lightroom, but if you take a look at the latest Lightroom and get into masks, you'll now see that there's the little uh, contrast adjustment, um, which means that you can either brush or you can select you know, select through luminosity or colour or whatever, select your mask, as long as you know how to select your mask well. You can actually affect individual parts of your image um, now, which is something I've been doing for, for years now in uh, yeah. Photoshop because Photoshop gives you that with luminosity mask, the ability to actually mask based on the the, the, the luminosity of uh, each, each of the pixels, which means you can make very fine-tuned adjustments to, to it all. Anyway, enough of the technology. No, that's like see that stuff interests me. I know like probably people listening are probably like, oh geez, these guys they're talking about things we can't see. They've spoken about an image that we can't that's actually it. Yeah, see. I'm, I'm here waving my arms around. Yeah, the- yeah. I'll just yeah, hold up little signs. But uh, like it's really interesting to to talk about that sort of stuff because it's something that you know, when it comes to the post processing, we all probably spend different amounts of time mm. like processing an image. Some people might just pop an image straight into Lightroom and whack a preset on it and then go, boom, see you later, I'm off. Yeah. And some people photo will use Photoshop and spend a lot of time playing with little parts of an image to perfect an image. And I, and I, I find that really interesting because it's, you know, you and I could go to the same scene and take the same image. Or and like then process image. it completely differently, yeah. Yeah. I, I and- can give you one of my raw files and it will, or, or you know, a, 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 a group, a, a bracketed group that I would use for a, an exposure blend and you would come up with a, a completely different look to, yeah. to, to what I did. <laughs> and and use different tools and different ways of doing it. But I'm, I'm going to have to play around with that, with those new tools in Lightroom because I don't generally Yeah, the, ma- the masking tool in Lightroom just opens up massive possibilities uh that weren't there you know 12 months ago uh for me as i say it's everything in in lightroom is there in adobe camera raw so because i don't want the baggage that comes with the database that um lightroom sets up and the gallery uh, to be honest, the gallery does my head in. Yeah, <laughs> for two reasons. One, um, it's actually creating a database which takes up disk space, and yeah. when you load it into memory as well, yeah, you can play around with caching and everything, and you can optimize it, but it's still taking up system processing resources that I prefer to you because I use Photoshop, you know, and Photoshop's a hungry beast as, as it oh, is. And yeah. I know Lightroom can be a hungry beast as it is, you know, but I, I've just found working my process, doing away with the database, doing away with, therefore with Lightroom, working within Adobe Camera Raw, which basically has almost all of the the, the developing, that, that developer tab or the develop tab in in Lightroom is exactly what Adobe Camera Raw provides. And so as long as you've got the raw image, you can pretty much do whatever you like to it. And to a, to a point, you can do a bit with the JPEG image. Yeah. Because when I first started with photography, it was Photoshop that I used. And so I, I was really probably the same sort of thing, like the Adobe Camera Raw and then like take it into Photoshop and play around with different layers and 
mm. and, and master some degree. Well, I'm still doing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I, I think maybe, I don't want to say laziness, but out of, I found Lightroom then easier. I played around with Lightroom. I was like, oh, this is a lot easier, like little sliders. But um, it, for me, it just, like I, I personally like the file structure yeah. of and Lightroom. I'm not saying it's it's yeah. just a, a personal thing. I don't I don't like what it does to the computer in terms of yeah. slowing it down and taking up this space. And so I, I ditched it a few years ago. Um, it's probably improved out of sight from where it was, but, yeah, it's just uh, something that I, I don't like and don't want. The, the last week I've had continuous issues with my catalogues being corrupted. So I've been like deleting catalogs, backing up, like using backups and then reinstalling yep. thousands of photos that I've taken because it just, yep. it doesn't work. And then earlier in the year, I lost every single photo that I took in February because yeah. my catalog crashed and I don't know what happened. And then everything was gone. And because I was traveling across Queensland, New South Wales with a mate, my my backup hard drive is, was, is here. And I was like, I've literally just lost everything I took in February. So the one thing I do miss out on, which I would like, but I've kind of got because I I work non-destructively in Photoshop anyway, so I, I create quite a few layers. Uh, but the one thing that I would like is all of the stuff that you do in Lightroom, you can, and again, this is another thing that adds weight to the database and everything because it stores this with your image file, is uh, all of the edits that you've made, all of the changes that you've made. So all of the snapshots that you've held onto and selected, but every edit you've made is actually reversible in Lightroom. And that's great. I, I love that fact, but you can actually do the same sort of thing in Photoshop but just takes a little bit more faffing about and, yeah. uh, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> um, I guess talking less about the technology, well, actually, why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because you, you raised something that um, I ask quite a bit on the show is the relationship between where you shoot, what you shoot, how you shoot and how you process and which one is the biggest driver for you is it do you do you shoot a certain way and do you shoot shoot certain subjects because they're close handy and um you process a certain way or do you shoot certain subjects because you love them and then that drives how you process and how you how you shoot them yeah, so I'm driven by location. Mm. 100% is everything is a location and it's not because they're close. So for me, I shoot a lot south of Adelaide CBD. Yep. And it's actually, depending on traffic, an hour to an hour and a half drive every time for me, depending on the area. Yep. And But it's just the areas that I go to or the areas that are south are just so photogenic. And that's what drives me to shoot those locations. And then in terms of the the post-processing side, that's that's changed again. So for me, I used to shoot a lot of like long exposures. Everything was let's chuck a 10-stop ND filter in front of it mm-hmm. and smooth out the motion. Let's capture some like the clouds dragging through an image. Yep. 
And I was driven by that because it created this real ethereal feel with the, mm. the cloudy milkiness of the water because that's like I found that people that I worked with or people that were commenting on my stuff were like, wow, this is amazing. It looks like it's a cloud scene like with the the water, like it's this misty fog. Like, oh, that's just amazing. Like I've never seen that. Yeah. Unless I've seen you can't that. see it with the human eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and then like the clouds, it's, just, it's like a painting. And now like the majority of my stuff now is less with filters and I'm capturing whether it's, you know, I still capture a little bit of motion if, if there's water in my scene, but generally I prefer the look of like half a second exposure. Yeah. Just that little bit of a drag of, of a wave or the, yeah. or the flow of the water as it goes out. So everything for me is driven by the locations and then I shoot depending on the conditions that are there. Yeah, right. So if it's if it's a bit more of an overcast day and then sunset's going to be a bit more miserable, then I'll generally aim for those longer exposures because I feel that you capture a bit of the mood mm-hmm. of the scene if it's a bit darker. If there's a lot of bright light and the sun's like blaring, then I'll generally aim for like shorter exposures and try and yeah, frame right. my scene in a way that the sun is sort of just out of the frame and then so that glow sort of comes into the into the scene mm-hmm. and then I'll make that pop a little bit more when it comes to the post-processing, whether it's being using like a radial filter with a really soft like edge to it and just really blow it out and then just, just tweak the exposure just this, just the tiniest little bit. Sure, sure. And add a bit of more orange to it and I just find that for me, I just love that kind of feeling of an image. Yeah, nice. How about yourself? I'm curious to know. Like, is it similar for yourself in terms of uh, you more sort of yes? Uh, I, I guess I shoot as I said, as I described before. I shoot the way that I do largely because I I'm well aware of the limitations that I have on the gear. Uh, it's got reasonable dynamic range in in camera but it's still not as good as a human eye. And therefore, to get something that looks a bit like what you can see with the human eye, that's it. And and I'm kind of excluding the very long exposure stuff that I might do at, you know, uh, half an hour before or an hour sometimes before sunrise, that nautical twilight where... You've literally got to have the the shutter open for seven minutes, excluding those because they're they're out there sort of shots. <laughs> a, not many people do them, and B, yeah. uh, they have their own look and feel, and they're a bit of a lottery when you make them as well because you're not guaranteed to get quite the effect that you expected. Uh, but in in terms of if if I was you know going to the beach and doing a a sunrise shoot that kind of dictates to me that I've got to do some kind of bracketing and therefore some kind of exposure blending because if I don't, to me, yes, I could buy filters. And this is one of the other things, part of it's an economic reason. I don't see personally a lot of value in buying uh, grad filters, whether they're hard or soft grad, and I don't own any. And I probably don't ever see myself buying any simply because uh, I 
I can do what I want to do without those those filters and I can get a scene that looks, because I'm taking an exposure that's exposed for the brightest highlights and exposures that are for the darkest shadows and a few in between, depending on how, you know, how many stops that looks like, you know, whether it's a four or a five stop change, you know, I'll do somewhere between three and five exposures. In some cases, I'll find, okay, because I haven't quite calculated it right, I only need to use two. Yeah. But, you know, that that sort of high dynamic range shot kind of dictates because I don't I don't own any grad filters and probably never will. Uh, it, it dictates that I've got a bracket and therefore that dictates kind of how I shoot. Um, if I go waterfall hunting, that's slightly different, but again, you can still get some, you know, with, with the caves that get in behind the, the waterfall and the bright white of the, the water falling itself, you, you again can get into some high dynamic range situations. But when it's a dull day and you've got even light and everything, then I don't shoot that way. So, yeah. you know, it, it, again, as you said, it depends on the conditions. It depends on what it is that you, you're taking a shot of and, you know, sometimes how I feel at the time, you know, could I be bothered messing around with it? That said, you know, that I, I fully, I go into it fully understanding if I'm going to do a, a five shot bracket and, you know, the, the attendant processing that comes behind that, the post-processing takes a bit of time and, but it's something that I enjoy doing equally as much as I enjoy shooting. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of people. You know, they they they're loath to spend ten minutes on their processing, but I kind of look at that a bit like, well, the time that you spend in the dark room back in the day when you were doing film, is the time where you're actually bringing the image, you know, into the world and into a form of, I, I guess, finishing that that image so that it's ready for public consumption or you know personal consumption if you don't show your images to anyone so for me it, it's really about that they're, they're two sides of the same coin and the shooting and the processing go hand in hand sometimes as i say though you know i'll i'll surprise myself and i'll I'll find something and I'll take another look at it like I did with the one that I, I posted the other day uh, with the waterfalls that we were talking about just before and be able to go, okay, well, the, when I first looked at that image, I thought, yeah, it's overexposed. I won't bother too much with it. And I moved on to other frames in the, in, in the shoot because I thought they gave me better value for, for time, you know, at, at the time. But when I've got the time, I'll go back into the archive and I'll take a look, take a second look and go, okay, well, let's reconsider this one. Let's see what I can do with it, chuck it in, play with it. Can I can I get something that actually looks any good? And sometimes you get one that does. Yeah. I think there's coming back with fresh eyes. Oh, absolutely. It's also so so important because you can come back after a shoot, look at a few images and go. Yeah, I'm not feeling this stuff. But then yeah. a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, you come back and you go, "Oh, hold on, there's actually something here." That's exactly right. Yeah. Spend that time and then turn that into something that you go, "Wow, how did I not see this originally?" Potentially, 
Yeah, and the number of things I I, I kind of look at it, look at them as saying, all right, well, there, there, there's primary primary images. I've I've nailed the composition. I've I've nailed what I want to do with it, and I've been able to process it and come out with something that I think is a, a really good shot. And I have the secondaries, which you know might sit in my archive for you know years before I touch them. Yeah. And some of those secondary ones are actually some of my favourites now because you go back to them, as you say, with fresh eyes and you go, wow, this, uh, I don't know why I didn't look at this one sooner. <laughs> yeah. But when there's so many photos, well, you well know, depending, on, yeah. depending on how often you go out, you know, you're talking about hundreds or thousands of photos. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, you, particularly, particularly when you're uh, doing exposure blending because, you know, I'm I'm typically taking I I'll, I I will set up and I will do uh, five images, say at f8. Then I might flick up to f11 or f13 or f14 and flick a, another five of the same composition. And then the light will change, and then I'll change settings yep. again without moving, and you know, flick off another five. So you know, I I could be getting twenty or thirty images of the same composition within. A fairly short period of time, within you know three or four minutes of uh, of you know setting up that composition. So it, it's it, for for me, it's a, it's about making sure that there's a, a a path that you can get what you want, and you know you, yourself. It can be okay. Well, I I want a bit of streaky cloud in in this set, so I've got to do long ex longer exposures or. I don't want that, and therefore I'm going to do shorter exposures. And it, it's that trial and error and experimentation that means you do take a lot more shots than oh, you may, may end up using. <laughs> and I think similar to like yourself, I will do, but I don't bracket as much anymore. When I first started, I used to bracket a lot, and I'd probably do three or five, sometimes seven, which I found was just overkill. Yeah, seven, seven's overkill. I've, I've never found a need to go that high. No, uh, I I did it for a while because I think I watched a video that said, oh, do seven. You'll get way more. No, it's too much time. <laughs> and and now I don't – I think since I, well, since I got the D850 when I first moved to that, the dynamic range of that camera was just so much that I was shooting bracketing to start off with, and I was like, I don't need this. Yeah, you don't, you. Yeah, and then, then when I moved to the Z line of cameras, it's the same thing. The dynamic range within those was just so much. So I was like, well, I don't need this, but – that being said, I still shoot multiple frames because I'll, you know, I might start shooting shorter exposures. So I'm capturing the the texture of a wave or the texture of the water. And then slowly I'll, you know, I might pop a filter on or I might tweak some settings and just drag that shutter a little bit. And then I'll go, okay, let's go full line exposure. So I'll come away with like the same composition for the most part, but I'll have five different images because there's something different or, the one that always comes to mind is those stairs and I'll have, if someone's come walking up the stairs as they've come back from the swim, then I get the wet footprints in the, in the yeah. stairs. So then I'll play around with that until the, the feet slowly dry away. Yeah. So it's really interesting that I can yeah. still do the same thing. And I find particularly with uh, waves when you're doing those, you know, somewhere between a quarter and a half a second, the textures that you get are, are, are very different, but you can also not always predict, you know, as as the tide rises or falls, you can't always predict how that's going to play over the rocks that you, or, or on the sand, you know, that, that you, you're shooting, you know. And therefore, 
you're not always going to get consistent results because each wave is going to be different. Not, not every wave flows in exactly the same way. And you, you might find a, a two or three in a set that might flow in a similar way, but then you might find, you know, the, the, the uh, water fills up because the, you're getting to the last wave in the set because they, they come in sort of sets of five to seven, you know. And so that last couple of waves is going to flow completely different to the first one where the uh, waves or the set before it had time to drag out and there was less water in in that sort of foreground. 100%. And I think for me, with like especially with the water, it's now that the weather's getting warmer, like I'll start jumping back into the water with my water housing. And mm. I'm like, I've been addicted to capturing the light on top of the water. And every image is different. And even though like the water is just like just for the yeah. most part, if it's, if it's a calm day, it's, it's like this. But the way that the light dances across the water as you're taking images, I'll come away with if I'm trigger happy, I'll come away with a couple of hundred hundred images. Mm. And I'll be skimming through them in Lightroom and I'll just be like, wow, look at the way the light bounced off the water there and then it's like this or then there might be a little bit of water drops on the water housing and so then it's, you get like a bit of like bokeh from that and it's like, wow, it's it's incredible. It's just so different even though it's the same and then I'll play around with even dragging the shutter a bit so I'm a bit slower and then it's different again in terms of the texture of the water. Yeah, yeah. What's the most memorable experience you've had out shooting? Um, I have to go for the first thing that came to my mind and that would be, and it's not like, a, it's not a landscape photo, mm. but it's diving with turtles earlier oh, this year. Hey. Uh, that was just, that's been something that's on a, on like a bucket list shot for me to go doing that. And I just remember like jumping into the water, diving around and then just all of a sudden in front of me was just this, this big massive turtle and I was just, like you could, I was squealing through the snorkel <laughs> and when I came up, cause my mate was still on the boat. I was like, I was like, Jay, 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 you got to get in here. And he like jumped in and by the time he got there, the turtle sort of swam off and we ended up finding it again. But afterwards he's like, they were worried you were drowning. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he goes, cause you were squealing through the snorkel and they thought maybe something had happened or something had gotten you or you'd cramped or something. And they were actually thinking about coming to rescue. And he's, and he's like, I told them you were just like a kid in a candy store <laughs> that had seen a turtle. And so that probably, like, if I think about most memorable moments, that would be, that would probably be the one that comes to mind, which is not, it's not a landscape. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great memory though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and like one of my favourite photos I've taken is is it's one of those photos from that series with the turtle and just the blue of the water and yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to get back to Julian Rocks next next year and dive. Hopefully, hopefully there's no floods or anything like that because when we went, the, it was probably about a week or two after some of the floods, yeah. and so the water was quite murky, so yeah. the images probably weren't as crystal clear as they could have been. So I'm really keen to, to get back to there, and I think from a landscape perspective, there's probably too many to count. Like in terms of moments, I, I, I think the, the first moment that actually comes to mind is, and it bounces back to what we were talking about in terms of dynamic range, it was I'd bought the D850 and 
the the first place I took the, the camera to was the the stairs that are synonymous with my name in Adelaide, and I was so excited because the the sun dipped below the horizon and it was a dull, very dull sunset. And I was like, yeah. I was like, damn, my first my first outing with this camera, and it's like it's a dud sunset. And I was just sitting there watching, it and then all of a sudden, just it just started to glow. Yeah, and it was just glowing, and I was like, I got all excited that when I had finished taking all my photos and I'd gotten home that night. I was like, yes, yes, I've got like magic. I've got magic. I know I have. But I looked at the photos again and I'd underexposed the images by like probably three stops. Oh, wow. Maybe like the images apart from the horizon that was just glowing. Yeah. Everything else was like almost black. And I was like, I just was like. And if you bring the shadows up, you've just got noise. Well, no, the photo's perfect. Oh, okay. Wow. I'll I'll have to send it to you after this. I know like for people that are listening, yeah, like visually it's 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 not gonna help them, but it it would like I was just I was blown away because the, the camera just captured so much dynamic range, it was able to bring wow. it all out. And there was not a great deal of noise. I think for posting online for Facebook and Instagram anyway, it was fine. But I'll yeah, yeah I'll send I'll go find it and I'll send it back to I'll I'll send you both. And uh and you'll see, but that was probably probably one of the, my most memorable landscape moments. But just because it's me just being excited, because yeah. I get very excited when the light. And and you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier is my thing is chasing the light. Yeah. So yeah. when the light is incredible, what's really good, I get goosebumps and I get excited and I, I sort of lose the, my thought process. Mm-hmm. And so photography, I find, and I don't know about yourself, and like, how long have you been shooting for? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> so, so I, because people always say that, like, how do you capture the images that you're doing or how do you capture moments? And, and maybe you're exactly the same. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but for me, it's just, it's second thought most of the time. Yeah. I, there's not a lot of thought that goes in. It's just, you know, my fingers flick on the dials and then I'm like, bam, here we go. Um, and I think it's just because it's, I've spent. I'm thinking more of the composition and getting yeah. excited by the, the light that I'm seeing. But I'm thinking more. Okay, do I do I with the zoom lens? Do I crop in a little bit? Do I pull back? What do I do there? Do I tilt left or right or up yep. or down? And you know, they're they're the main things. But once I've actually settled, that's the comp I want. Yeah, I don't I don't think much about the the shooting other than yeah, you know, going up and down up and down the 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 aperture scale maybe a little bit to give me what I want. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm exactly the same. Like I'll focus on what I, how what I want the image to look like in terms of like a composition, but settings wise, there's not a lot of thought that happens. But when the light is really nice, I lose that. It's like I yeah. get this like, like I probably I can't think of another phrase to use, but baby brain. Um, <laughs> which I'm a man, I can't get baby brain. But a, a girl at work's pregnant. She's talking about a baby brain today, and I was like, that's probably what it is. I actually forget what I'm doing, and so yeah. I'll come away with these images, and I'll be like, oh what was I doing and or I'll see them on the back of the screen afterwards I'm like what was I doing what was I thinking and like, that's where luckily the D850 was was powerful enough in those few instances where because that wasn't the only time that I got excited and just underexposed images that I'd luckily be able to bring them back mm-hmm. um, but yeah nice I sound, I sound rather silly but <laughs> <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm totally with you yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's uh, I'll probably I'm I'm a little bit worried because as I've mentioned a few times, off to New Zealand, 
in 30 something days and everyone's like, oh, I can't wait to see what you come away with in New Zealand. And well, I'm the actually expectation I'm, bars being set high. It's high. And, but I'm like, I'm freaking out because I'm like, I know that I'm going to see something and I'm going to be absolutely blown away by the beauty of, of the scene. And I don't know if you've ever been to New Zealand, have you? Or? I have, but only for work and only oh. to the North Island. Okay. I haven't been to the South Island at all, I regret to say. Yeah, hopefully there's still time. Now the borders are open. And I just know, I just know I'm going to see something and I'm just going to be like blown away and I'm going to come away with like, sure, I'll not, I'll not come away with images because I'll calm myself down. But I think the first day or two I'm just going to be like, oh, wow, wow, wow. But I, I, I think, to be honest, this is one thing that a lot of photographers sometimes forget to do is to actually sit there and enjoy that moment for what it is as opposed to sitting there concentrating on trying to get the mm. setting right and all the rest of that sort of thing. Yeah, great if you can if you can manage both. But some some of my favourite moments are ones where I haven't even got the camera out of the bag. Yeah. And it's just sitting there watching the sunrise, sitting next to my wife or watching the sunset, you know. Or even like tonight, just ducking outside and watching yeah. the... Duck out um, and have a look at the moon. I'm I'm not going to take a camera out there and try and shoot the moon tonight. Yeah, my, my laptop because of I logged into Instagram to get ready for this, so like it's now sending me notifications every now and again. And literally, I've had probably three or four in the last ten minutes, being like, "You better be taking photos of this." And I'm like, "No, I'll, I'll reply later." <laughs> um, I'm at, I like I probably will duck outside and take some photos afterwards, but. I think yeah. I'll probably just, probably like similar to you. I'll just go out and just enjoy it. Like it's like I said earlier, it's the moon. It doesn't really fit with what I share, and like there's nothing. It's it's just literally just going to be the moon in the sky. Well, this is it. It's too high for it to be, you know, set against anything interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for me, it's kind of like yeah, there'll be a lot of other people taking shots of it. So I, I don't need to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Because I'll just—I know it'll be all over like Facebook and Instagram yeah. tonight, tomorrow. The news, the news pages will share it all. And be like, oh, yeah, cool. That's, that's exactly it. Um, I don't—I don't, I don't want to. I mean, I, I want to let you get out and do what you want to do with the moon. But uh, I, I guess, what do you like to do when you're not out shooting? Um, I, I'm a big on learning. So there's two there's two things that are very important for me. One is the gym. So I spend a fair bit of time at the gym. I may end up going for a second time tonight because I sort of cut my, my session earlier. Mm-hmm. So physical fitness and health and fitness is, is very important to me. Yep. And the second one is learning. I'm very big on continuously learning and not necessarily always photography-related I read books on all different sorts of subjects or I watch YouTube documentaries or documentaries just about random things that um, just nothing to do with anything photography later. Like before this, uh, before jumping on with you, I was actually watching a YouTube documentary about Papa John's. Oh, yeah. The story of Papa John's in America and how they started, like the guy that founded it and then all the, the stuff behind how that, began and then how it got to where it's at and then the problems that they face and stuff like that. Just random stuff that, like, it's, I just love to just watch random videos like that and just learn different things that, you know, random bits of 
point in time, I may just bring into conversation with people and go, oh, okay, that's all right. Um, but if I'm not shooting, I'm probably also thinking about photography. It's it, it consumes me in that in that sense that I'm. It, it's a big part of my life. Like it's a huge part of my life. That, yeah. Oops. I think everyone that is a serial and whether you get paid to do it or, you know, whether you're full-time or part-time, but people that are serious about it, I, I think uh, have to have that little bit of OCD-ness about them that, yeah. you know, the, 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 the brain just gets channeled and I've got to do this. I've got to go out at sunrise and I've got to, <laughs> got yeah, to go I'm and stand... Stand in the water and up to my knees or up to my neck or whatever and get the shot. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like, it's, you're right. Like, OCD is probably a big thing. Like, the, probably the right way of describing it because definitely that's, that's, a positive, yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. And one of the things that I've been focusing on a lot over the last probably three months trying to get myself better is, is because this year I started teaching for Nikon, mm-hmm. like teaching live classes and, when I first started to where I'm at now, like trying to teach people that might have different learning styles to myself, you know, whether they're audio or visual and and trying to make sure that, you know, these people that are paying to come to classes and learn how to capture images or improve or feel better with their camera. So I've been watching a lot of content on learning styles and how to teach people different things. Yeah, right. Which has been a pretty big, big learning curve. I've still got a lot to not to learn, yeah. um, but I'm enjoying it. I, I, I really do enjoy getting out and just getting hands-on with people. And no, that's probably... fantastic. Have you ever hit a creative wall? And if so, how did you handle it? I've definitely had, hit a lot of creative walls over the years. And for me, in terms of handling those early on, I, I got really frustrated with myself and I'd beat myself up that I just didn't really have that desire to go out and create or capture images and I would... I'd go for these drives, long drives, whether it's down south or even just to some of the local beaches in Adelaide or a few times I've driven to like the York Peninsula, which is four hours away, and I'd take all the camera gear, but I just wouldn't shoot. And I'd beat myself up because I was like, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I still driving out? Why why can't I take photos? Why, why is there no desire to do it? And as like I've grown as a person, I've realised that during those periods of time where I've hit that creative wall, it's just to accept it yeah, yeah. And, and not beat myself up and, and then pivot into something else, like find something else to do. Or like you mentioned before, still go out, but don't take the camera yeah. and just go and appreciate the moment yeah. that they are and just sit there, read, meditate, just, just not, not be too concerned. Whereas like probably four years ago, three years ago, I would really beat myself up. I'd feel down. So then I'd feel worse yep. and I'd fall deeper and deeper into that rut and, and getting out just took a, a long time. I'm curious to know about yourself though. Like how about, what do you do or if you found yourself in them? Oh, well, I started a podcast. So yeah. <laughs> that's one way that I dealt with the creative wall, but that was more a, uh, a wall that was imposed on me because uh, that was middle of COVID lockdowns 165 days where I wasn't allowed more than five k's away from the front door uh, but other creative walls yeah I I tend to do similar sorts of things in terms of just going out and enjoying an experience but 
I'll, I'll just go and do something else for a little while if I get feel that I'm in a bit of a rut or things aren't working the way that I, I want them to. Um, and sometimes that may be completely and utterly divorced from anything to do with photography. Uh, sometimes I'll also, you know, do something different with photography. So just pick up the camera and do something in a, in a different genre or play around with it in a different way and do something a bit more experimental that, you know, I may or may never share with anyone else other than people that I think might appreciate it. You know, it depends yeah. on how, how I feel about it at the end. You know? <laughs> But yeah, it's not something that I, uh, I, I gotta say, it hasn't happened a lot, uh, but it, it's something that I'm very conscious of looking at strategies for, you know, avoiding it in the first place. And one of the things that I've done in terms of that for my own mental well-being is actually getting a lot more relaxed about what happens on social media and getting a lot more relaxed about whether or not there are or aren't likes or whatever, you know, those things can consume you a little bit and they can therefore impact what you're doing with your photography. Um, and, you know, if I don't have a post every night, I don't care. I, I will when I can and I won't when I don't. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's really important. And yeah, especially because, because the, the whole, social media side of it is is great because you want to share these images that you you love mm. and then you so you go and you post them and then you're like yes 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 it's gonna be amazing and then you come back and it's like hold on two people like this or whatever it is and whether it's the algorithm or people just don't jive with what you've put up you know it it, it shouldn't matter and you know people put too much stock in it I think, and it's really just about, uh, I, if I think about it and think about the people that do comment and I, I see regularly, they're the ones that are obviously, I, I don't want to say fans because I don't think I've necessarily got fans. Maybe there might be some fans coming off the, the back of the podcast now, but, <laughs> you know, to be honest, uh, you know, it's it's not something that I, I I think too much about, but I do appreciate those that are there. And yeah. if you do comment, I'll always comment back as much yeah. as I possibly can. And, and it's really important because a lot of people get so stuck in that whole, like they'll get upset. They'll I, I've known friends in Adelaide that have almost deleted their accounts because. Yeah they get depressed because they're not getting the engagement that they get. And, you know, Instagram removing the likes for a period of time was really good because that, that kind of helped. They then obviously allowed it to come back and, and so you can see some people's likes and other times or you can hide them if you want. But I think it's more about just sharing what you like. And one of the questions I get a lot when people reach out to me and stuff is, how do I get more likes? How do I get more followers? Yeah. And my response is always the same. It's don't worry about the number of likes. Don't worry about the followers. Like, why yeah, do you want what you enjoy sharing? Yeah. What? Like, why? Why do you want this? And they'll be like, well, because I want to. I want to work with brands, or I want to. I want to be like famous. Want to be an influencer? Yeah. Yeah, I want to be an influencer. <laughs> like, but it's not important. 
it doesn't no. matter. Like it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Like That's exactly it. Yeah. I know people that have under a thousand followers, but they get offered to shoot like cars for Peugeot and Ford and and all these brands. Yep. And I know people that have 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, they get nothing. Yeah. And it's because the the brands, they see the content. Like they, your content may not always reach the right person, but if it reaches the right person and they look at your style and they go, wow. I want to work with you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to work with you. They're going to go, oh, wow. They don't, they're not going to go, oh, you've only got 500 followers. Like you're, yeah. you're not good enough. Because it's it's the content is what's important and sharing That's what exactly you right. what you love what you like, and then that will come across that people will feel that in your images, and then the rest might come, it may not come, but that shouldn't like get you upset, yeah, or get you down. And it shouldn't, and it shouldn't dictate your life. And you know, social media if it's if it's a big part of your life, I get it. If you were, you know, l l let's say you were somebody with, you know, 40, 50,000 followers and it was your business and you are an influencer for whatever, you know, brands or whatever that that may entail, then great. I can understand why you might be really looking hard at your engagement. But if you're just a hobby or amateur or even a professional photographer that is just enjoying sharing your work well just do it and don't worry too much about the rest of it oh that's it and I, i'm guilty guilty of it myself like when probably before probably mid last year before that my account was off the hook you know i was getting thousands of likes on images i was getting yep. hundreds of comments and i was like wow like my account was growing massively and the last year and a half, it's like just dropped off. Sometimes I might post and I might get 200 likes. Yep. I, I look at it because I'm just curious, but I don't get upset anymore. Yeah. Whereas a year ago or two, like, yeah, a year ago or even before that when it was good, but then I'd post something and it wouldn't go great, I would probably fall back into that rut a little bit and I'd be like, well, what's the point? Yeah. yeah. Whereas now I'm like, well, cool, whatever. Like it doesn't matter. Um. It's I'm 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 sharing content that I love, and, and sometimes people, I post. The people that like you will seek you out and find you and 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 like your stuff. You know. Yeah. The 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 ones I mean a, a big part of it, particularly with Instagram at the moment, is the way that they uh, are feeding you everyone that you don't follow. <laughs> That that's certainly not helped anyone, as far as no. I'm concerned. But there are ways of actually seeing a feed which is your followers and people that you follow, and that's the way that I engage with it now. And I, I rarely use the the standard feed. I'll tell tell you another little secret, and they'll, they'll probably shut it down after they hear this. Um, not not that I think they're listening. But uh, if you look at the desktop version of Instagram as opposed to the app, uh, you get a feed of your followers. Oh. And you get a lot less ads. I won't say you get none. Yeah. You get a lot. I've certainly noticed that I, I get half the ads, half the sponsored posts uh, that I do on. And I can literally sit there and scroll. 
open open both at exactly the same time and the, the post feeds are completely different. Yeah, because I don't know if you've noticed that, I've only noticed this probably the last two days, that if I click on someone's profile mm. and I start scrolling, instead of looking at their feed like as a grid, if I go through their post and scroll through their post, yeah, I now get sponsored posts. That's it. And I'm yeah. like, hold on, I've clicked on, and so I, I go, do I not click on their profile? Because I'm yeah. like, who's, who's this name? And I'm like, hold on, sponsored. I'm like, go back, I'm, like, I'm on their profile. Why is Instagram showing me a sponsored post when I'm on someone's, like I'm trying to scroll through someone's profile. I'm like, that's really yeah. cheeky. But um, but you don't see, interestingly, you don't see that in the desktop version. Yeah, okay. At All least right. as of when this was recorded. Yeah. They, do you know, I know you said like they're not listening, but they're always listening. Yeah, well, I've, I've got my phone here in front of me. So yeah, yeah mine, mine's too. They're they're like, the, the, the AI bot is taking notes. Yeah, yeah, hold on. Let me just refresh the uh, the Instagram web page. That's right. Uh, are there any photographers out there that you think I should be talking to? I, I, I think one, Josh Beams. I haven't spoken to Josh. I'm I'm aware of his work. Yes. Yeah, Josh. Josh is a really incredible photographer. I remember a few years ago watching him. Uh, he came to Adelaide with Nikon, and I went to I went to his like I sat in with his his thing, and I was just blown away at just the way that he talks and his thought process behind the images. Yep. So Josh is really incredible. If I think about some South Australian photographers, there's a photographer called Troy Story. Okay. Uh, I'll send you his profile afterwards. Yeah. He but... is, so he's, he, oh, he's not a landscape photographer, but if you're, he does do some landscape, but he has a totally different way of seeing the world and his landscape photos that he does take are just out of this world. Uh, you've done Marissa. Yep. I love, I love Marissa stuff. Have you done, um, I think it's Bridie Lou, Bridget? No. She's a Gold Coast based photographer. She's, Really incredible with her sunrises and I know Bridget. Yep, I know I'm just naming off Nikon photographers here as well. So <laughs> I know we usually cop a bit of slack in the community because everyone says our cameras are like potatoes. But I don't know what brand do you shoot with? Me, I'm a I'm a Canon. Um, okay. it's basically uh, in, interestingly, I, I had a Nikon point and shoot, uh, and at some time. Uh, a couple of Canon point and shoots, and you know this was back in the day when they first sort of came out, and I hadn't got a, I, I, I was still using a, a film SLR, uh, hadn't bought a, a DSLR at the time, and I just found the color on the Canons looked a lot better than it did on the Nikon that I had, yeah, and it might have just been that particular model or that particular sensor or whatever, I don't know. Uh, but then when I, I I did a little bit of playing around and shopping around and I found, I, I won't say the same, but similar sort of colour differences, that the colour in the, the the Nikons weren't quite as vibrant as they were, the blues weren't quite as vibrant as they were in the in the Canon. Um, and, yeah, so that, that was why I picked them back yeah, in okay. the day, years, years and years ago, 2000 and uh two or three or whenever it was i think <laughs> just a little while ago now a little while ago now it's, it's hard to believe that's you know 20 years ago yeah but it's, it's interesting that you mentioned about the color because i and i guess maybe that's why i've stuck to nikon over the years 
is I love their colors. Yeah, and, and it's it's a it's a preference. I know. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's like when people when you, I, I know what I've told people they're like, oh, like, what do you love about like Indicon cameras? I'm like the colors of the images that it comes out. They're sort of looking like aren't they all the same? It's like, no, they're not. Uh, they're not. Because like, even Sony, Sony have. A, I, I feel Sony. I think a lot is ex- yeah. I, I I've got to say I'm not not a fan of Sony's color. Uh, it, it's to me, it's just not not as good as either Nikon or uh, or, or Canon or Fuji. Yeah. Um, you know, I, but to be honest, I'm I'm not really a gear snob. I don't. I I would shoot anything if I had it, but yeah. now I've got a whole bunch of Canon glass. I can't see myself changing. Um, I'm coming up for that choice around mirrorless and what I jump to there. Do I ditch all the glass? But then I also think economically, well, for 200 bucks, I can also attach all of the nice L glass that I've got from Canon to, to the mirrorless. So I'll probably do that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know enough about, like, I'm not, a, I'm probably similar to myself, I'm not a gear stub. I'll shoot with anything. Uh, I can't work a Canon camera at all. Like someone gives me a Canon, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm the same. Uh, I'm a bit the same with Nikon um, and, and Sony. Sony, yeah. Sony, I think, has got a much worse interface than either Nikon. Nikon's See, a little bit more intuitive. Yeah. See, I, I'm better with Sony, but that's only because my best mate has like a Sony. So yeah, when right. we go out and shoot, like I might shoot him with his camera. But um, the, the, the adapted lenses, I, I found when I've, I mean, I've got one, old Nikon lens now or Sigma lens actually and like adapted it works perfectly so I imagine Canon would be the same that like adapted yeah, a mate of mine he's just shifted to uh he does a lot of motorsport photography he's just shifted to the R3 and I think he also has an R5 which are sort of like your, your two top of the range the the R3 is really aimed at sport share. I mean yes you could shoot anything you want with it but when you're talking about the ability to do something like, what is it, 60 or 70 frames a second on electronic shutter, you know, it's really all about being able to do sports photography um, more than anything. Uh, And the R5 is more attuned to a a general workhorse across the board. It'll, It'll pretty much do anything except it won't, perform quite as well as the R3. But he's he's done the same in terms of the adapter. He's he he bought the two hundred dollar adapter and his old glass works just as well as yeah. the new glass. Some of the new glass has a couple of extra features because um you've got uh because you've got in body and in lens stabilization in the R series they work together. Uh, to give you a, a much better image. So with um, the older lenses, even though they might have image stabilization on the uh, on, on the camera, it's, it just doesn't work quite as quite as well as uh, this is his yeah yeah sort of opinion to to, to as he's related it to me but um, yeah. I've got one more question for you, and you probably know what's coming. It's the most important question I can ask. Do you like pineapple on pizza? Love it. It definitely, it definitely belongs on pizza. 
Very good. So you you won the order the Hawaiian, yeah? Yeah, I um, <laughs> just offer a little bit of a tangent. One of my best mates owns a pizza shop. All right, and he he doesn't think pineapple belongs on pizza. So I'll go in there and order. Might be Italian, so he's probably got good reason. No, he's um, oh, he's Lebanese. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he but he hates pineapple on pizza. So sometimes I'll just walk in there and I'll be like. Hey, can I grab this pizza? And it doesn't have pineapple on it. I'll be like, but can I get pineapple? Yeah. Or I'll be like, can I just get a cheese and pineapple pizza just to like razz him up? <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think it, it definitely belongs. Like, even burgers, burgers, the other one. People, uh, it's got to be on a burger. Definitely. Yeah, it's got to be on a burger as well. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why people hate it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it on a burger. I'm, I'm less fussy if it's not on a pizza. Or I, I'll eat it if it's on a pizza and there's nothing else I'll eat it I probably wouldn't go and order it though yeah like just cheese and pe- and pineapple pizza yeah no that that I probably wouldn't go that far yeah I've never I've never done it but I'd go in there to order it like he would also like I'll do I'll get kebabs from him and like different things I'm like oh can you just chuck some pineapple on that for me actually pineapple on a kebab would be great I think I didn't like it no so I I yeah I got one and I didn't like it and so when I went back there he was like all right I had to had the pineapple on the kebab go, and I was like, "No, nah, it's not good." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, now you need to take it off your pizza next time." <laughs> uh, I might have to give it a go. <laughs> yeah, let me let me know like different taste buds, you know. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. All right, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, chatting with you, Nathan, and really good getting to to know you a lot better. Uh, where can people find your work? Uh, so the easiest place to find me is probably on Instagram, which is just at Nathan Godwin. Uh, I do use Facebook, but not as much, but that's Nathan Godwin Photography. The Instagram's probably where I'm uh, on the most. Perfect. All right. Thanks very much, Matt. No, thank you. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne and hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm-hmm.